Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben and I are um, still glowing from our uh, fun interview with Prime Minister Trudeau. We're not really glowing. We're we're in the same clothes if you're watching this on video, though, because we're recording oh, a mailbag. You, you just episode. busted me because I took off my button-down shirt. Oh well, I, I didn't thought have I was going to 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 achieve the optical illusion that this is a different day. But it's yeah, not. well, I screwed it up for yeah. you, buddy. <laughs> um, before we get to the question, just two quick things, Ben. So we got some really exciting news. Our newest podcast, Mother Country Radicals, is out now. It's a 10-episode series hosted by Zane Ayers Dorn. Finally, Crooked Media gets to tell the story of Bill Ayers that we always wanted yeah, to tell yeah, on the Obama campaign. Yeah, yeah. You go back to the 1970s uh, when Zayd's parents and their young friends in the Weather Underground organization declared war on the United States government. It explores the progressive reasons and deadly consequences of this incredible time in history with archival footage and firsthand interviews of nearly every living member of the Weather Underground at the Black Liberation Army. You can listen to the first three episodes of Mother Country Radicals right now wherever you get your podcasts this show is incredible. Wind of change caliber. I can't stuff. wait to tune in. Uh, You're going to love this. You know, my mom went to college with Kathy Boudin. No way. Bryn Mawr. Yeah. I'm not saying that they were tight or anything, but yeah. I know. Definitely I, cross paths. Yeah. yeah. I'm a member. Yeah. Um, also, uh, a lot going on in June, but very important this month is Pride Month. This year, Crooked Media's Pride Fund is supporting three incredible organizations that provide community building, gender affirming, and life-saving resources to the queer and transgender community. Go to crooked.com slash pride fund if you want to donate or just learn more. We're recording a mailbag episode this week because Ben is going to be on the road in Copenhagen. Can I say that? Yeah. 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 With, uh, what's his face? That guy you're traveling with? The, the former president, Barack Obama. Jimmy Carter. Oh, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. It'd be quite the feat if Jimmy Carter was still traveling. It, it's funny that the entire world is coming here for this summit and I'm leaving with the former you know, you zig when they zag, uh, man. I'm, I'm like a retired, you know, I guess that means I'm a retired guy. You know? <laughs> um, but, you know, we got great questions from you guys. It's honestly, the mailbag episodes on these are always super fun. Yeah, these are good. Um, great questions. Ben, I would be remiss, though, if we didn't just start by quickly talking about the news that broke this week that Jared Kushner spent the final months of his time at the White House watching a master class, I believe, by James Patterson about how to write a book. Um, way to close out strong, and that Ari Fleischer, former apologist for the Bush administration and the Iraq war, is now fronting a uh, press event for the new Saudi government-funded golf league. I will say that this can be categorized as mailbag because I got more than one either tweets or Instagram messages saying, you guys got to talk about the Saudi golf league. You know? The Saudi golf league. Yeah. The rumor is that Tiger Woods was offered $1 billion or something just short of a billion dollars yeah. to do this, and he turned it down. Yeah, and Phil Mickelson got $150 million. That's the rumor for Phil. Ari, Ari Fleischer probably did for $150. Bucks. Um, <laughs> what a piece of shit. Yeah. What an, um, like, well, just a terrible person. goes from flocking for the Iraq war in the aftermath of 9-11 to flocking for the Saudi golf league. I'll tell you there's like a serious point to be made about this, though, which is that like this golf league is in miniature 
like the problem Sports with the Washington. Saudis because yeah. it's basically like they are testing a proposition that America and Americans can just be bought, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and there are enough people proving them right, like Phil Mickelson and Ari Fleischer. Ari Fleischer, you know, even like MAGA adjacent Trump endorsing Jack Nicholas. So I saw said no, you know, mm-hmm. so like there's people said no, Tiger, like you mentioned, but uh, come on. I mean, can't people just watch golf without, I mean, and also the fact that it's golf, like it, 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 the bone something saw gross invitational. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, it's exactly. Just like, disgusting. Come on, guys. You know, I, I tweeted this at Ari. He blocks me, but hopefully he listens to the show. But I, I do think he should <laughs> yeah. do his annual 9 11 tweet storm from uh, the home of one of the 15 Saudi hijackers. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. That was, uh, yeah, that was well that, done. Yeah. That was well done. Thanks. He Every now and then, he, the, you know, Twitter can still <laughs> be a unique art form. I mean, of know? course, of course, we both like Twitter when it allows us to be just viciously mean <laughs> yeah. to some enemy. Well, like, mainly that's what it's to for. Jared Kushner and Ari Fleischer. But yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's get to some substance, Ben. Dan from Australia on Twitter asks, given BB's information campaign on the original Iran deal, as well as his pressure on Trump, do you believe we would have a different outcome if the Israeli government had changed earlier? Fascinating what if question. It really is. I mean, I, I think that um, it's quite possible that that we would, you know, Um because I lived on the other side of that information campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it extended uh, to Some pe- of it paid, yeah, some so, of it yeah, media. Yeah, some <laughs> of it, and some of it extended to people like spying on me and stuff, right? Um, but um, the reality is that like BB took his kind of anti-Iran deal politics and, and he injected them so aggressively into American politics. Mm-hmm. You know, people won't recall necessarily, but he came to the United States at the invitation of the Republican Party to address Congress mm-hmm. against the Iran deal before it even happened. And I think what that did is it made the Iran deal like almost like an identity politics issue in American politics. So so like, you know, Obamacare, the Iran deal, it was it, it kind of got wrapped into that toxic ball of grievance in us versus them politics. And that meant that a guy like Trump, who like doesn't have like a well evolved view of nuclear nonproliferation agreements, no, you know, just demagogued the <laughs> no, hell out he of doesn't. it in his yeah, in his campaign, and then with Bibi's continued backing in the the first couple of years of his presidency, overruled all of his advisors in pulling out of the deal, which he didn't even really need to do. Like, you know, it wasn't like huge political utility in that, but it was just kind of, it was such a, it went from being a kind of a second tier right-wing grievance to a first tier because of Bibi. And I think if you had even like this current government that voices opposition to the agreement, but kind of doesn't really do that much to act on it, um, I think it might've been different. I do think that that if there's what the, 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 the person who is most responsible for killing the Iran deal, other than, I guess, Donald Trump, um, is definitely Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, hypothetical. I I do find it incredibly annoying when I read all these former Israeli generals, Mossad guys, national security officials coming out five years later and not all like profiles encourage yeah and be like yeah. hey we were wrong the iran deal was good yeah um, they, but they knew that at the time i know I they know. knew that at the time I, i'll tell you the 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 most interesting thing which is that like when when um when you would sit down with them because the u.s has these 10-year mous memorandums mm-hmm. of understanding about the security assistance we provide to israel like after the iran deal they were like pleased to not have to 
consider deal with that. like the likelihood of a potential war over a nuclear program with Iran. And so like their working level security people were always in a different place than BB, which made made this such a, like kind of a toxic performative issue. You know? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I, I, I think BB's lobbying mattered to Trump, but for purely political reasons. Yeah. I don't think Trump knows or cares about policy. He wanted to do the opposite of whatever Obama did and that made whatever made his base happy. And so my bigger point on this is the people that know better uh, and oppose the JCPOA should live in shame. Uh, I also think like tepid Democrats in the press yes. who kind of like yeah. wouldn't really fully support it should really think about the situation we're in now and whether they want to have the guts to be for diplomacy in the future. The tepid Democrats uh, were tepid in part because of Bibi being so vocal right. in American politics. Let's just be honest about that. Right. And, um, you know, you can you can tie it to other issues too, like that not you know, whether you're a Republican who knows better about democracy or or a Democrat who knows better about taking a principled stand on something like people hanging back is why we're in this mess, not just on Iran, but on a, on a, a lot, lot of, of stuff. Um, Nick on Twitter asks, I feel like Pakistan was the most discussed foreign policy topic at the start of the 2010s, and we never hear about it anymore. Has the situation there over the last decade gotten better or did our attention shift away to other areas of the world? You know, but I actually like had a similar thought about this the other day, I think maybe because we were talking about the changeover in administrations. Um, the problem has not gone away. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. There's terrorist groups running around the country. They are constantly teetering on becoming a theocratic government. They still view India as a mortal enemy. I mean, I think what obviously has changed is the war in Afghanistan is now over. The The threat from extremist groups has metastasized. And we're not just talking about Al-Qaeda and the Fatah. We're talking about ISIS everywhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Pakistan's in some real trouble. You know, they're dealing with the impact of climate change. There's a polio outbreak that I was reading about just now. There's a, a, a fragile new prime minister and a, and a recently ousted former prime minister who's like blaming America for, for getting pushed out. So um, the extremism problem hasn't gone away. Yeah. The nuke problem hasn't gone away. Yeah. Do you think this is Nick Shapiro on Twitter? Uh, I don't know. A friend, friend of the pod, oh, former good CIA. I'll, I'll uh, ask him. But um, it's I, I. That's a great question because when you and I came into government, like Pakistan was like top of the list. Do you remember that in the the Jefferson Jackson dinner in Iowa mm -hmm. in 2007? Like this is the key. This is my love event. language. Yeah, yeah, the key political event in the Iowa caucus. Joe Biden gave a, a really long speech. And this is yes. like you're supposed to distill your message yes. in one speech. And it was principally about Pakistan. Yes. And it was about like how Pakistan is the most dangerous place in the world. It was, you know, true, right? Like the mixture of terrorism, nuclear weapons. You, you know what I'm talking what about. What was right? the framing of it? It was like what he would have done on 9-11 or something? Was it was what, what would have Joe Biden done after 9-11? And, and a lot of third person. Like, uh, But I, I, I digress. I mean, the, the point is that what's interesting about this is that None of those underlying dynamics, right? The presence of terrorist organizations, uh, like a military intelligence kind of deep state, for lack of a better way of putting it, that that undermines democracy, support for the Taliban, right? Those problems didn't get solved, right? And they didn't necessarily improve that much. Uh, I think what happened is in the Obama, early Obama years, we we made a run at that and kind of got nowhere, nowhere. right? And so what ended up happening is the, the principal interest to the United States, like there's the thing that kind of enters into like first tier, you can't mess this up, you have to spend time on this, was that Al-Qaeda safe haven in Pakistan. 
And particularly between kind of 2009 and 2012, kind of the first Obama term, most of that safe haven was taken away. Um, and then Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, if you look at American policy after the bin Laden operation, that first tier like threat to the American homeland pretty much went away. Because um, remember, even early in the bomb years, there were a bunch of terrorist plots that were oh, yeah, uncovered. Oh, yeah, real ones. Times um, Square. Times Square, car bomb um, in, from Pakistan. That went away. And even though the other threats remained, um, nuclear weapons, a lack of democracy, support for the Taliban, those were like hard to dislodge. And, um, and now that doesn't mean it's any better. It just means that it's less in front of American politicians and the American yeah. public because yeah. we're not as indirectly endangered. I think that the the shame on all of us, like as with a bunch of other things we've talked about recently, is that you know Afghanistan is a manifestation to some extent of Pakistan's support for the Taliban. So yeah. in some ways, Pakistan is the dog that caught the car. In that you know mm -hmm. now the Taliban is next door. Yes, know? absolutely right. Um, Doug on Twitter asks, I assume uh, Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman. Oh, I like this uh, game, by the way. Give people <laughs> last names. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. other countries yeah. been more successful in framing renewable energy as a national security issue, or national security interest, sorry. Uh, what could the U.S. learn, and do you think it would help the U.S. quicken the transition? Great question. It is a great question, and I've, I'm thinking about this, and there's been a lot of talk over the years, and a lot of work done, you know, the U.S., in the U.S., there have been reports issued by the Pentagon, the intelligence community, some of which we talked about, to, to make the national security case around climate change. Mm -hmm. You hear this in Europe and other places. And yet I couldn't really think of a country that has successfully kind of framed this issue uh, through security. And people should let us know if, if, we're, if there's something we're missing in yeah. Europe. And, but uh, but I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing it. The reality is, so like all the things we talk about that have a national security nexus, conflict, migration, political instability, these are all going to grow up exponentially because of climate change, right? Um, and and we're going to be living in a world in which national security is shaped by climate change. And, and so I do think that like part of this is it's often like a messaging challenge, as it's described, like have generals go out and make the case on climate change, reach audiences that don't really care about, I don't know, environmental issues by talking to them through this prism. That's all true. But I think the other thing that has to happen is governments need to reorient themselves to recognize that this is a national security challenge. And the U.S. government still hasn't done that. So just to give you one example, like John Kerry is a special envoy. It's still kind of like, and that's great. But it's still like there are these people over here who do climate change, and then there are these people over here who do diplomacy and right, national yeah, security. Yeah, the rest. And, and so I'd like to see both the messaging point that this is framed around security, but also, frankly, the integration of climate change into the kind of bureaucracies of national security in, in countries around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And look, at the, the really, truly unfortunate in the U.S. that this has gotten distorted by fossil fuel industry lies and their ability to buy off politicians. And now- climate change is just fully tied into the culture war issue, right? Like Republicans yeah, think it's yeah. funny to like pretend the issue is AOC wanting to eliminate cows so they stop farting. I mean, it was like, it's just idiocy. It, this stuff is going to, like, can you imagine how that's going to age? You know, like it's uh, what it's going to look like in 10, 20 years. Yeah. I mean, well, I think what it looks like now, but um, yeah. but it's just a case that these issues that, it, it gets at the question of what is national security? Because if national security is like kind of the protection of people's lives, mm -hmm. guns, Climate, 
pandemics. <laughs> like yeah. these are much more dangerous to us than taking your shoes than off at the airport. Taking your shoes off at the airport, or you know. So I do think that the Democrats and I'd welcome Republicans doing this too, like framing national security differently, not accepting the frame that national security is just like, you know. It's a, uh, a stack, rack and stack like of terrorism like, wars, terrorism, yeah. support for Israel. Like, you know, like, no, t- national security is these other things, too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Noel on Twitter asks, what are your thoughts overall on nuclear power as a clean generation method? Do the risks both real and perceived outweigh the rewards, even with the impending climate crisis on a global scale? Do developments in fusion technology change anything? Great question. Uh, I am nowhere near smart enough to know what the reality is with fusion technology. I feel like every couple of years, I read that we're on the cusp of something, and yeah. then I read that, no, we're nowhere close. I have no idea. I do think you, know, you and I lived through, we, didn't, we know about Chernobyl, but we lived through the Fukushima disaster in Japan, and that showed the enormous downside risk, enormous downside risk of nuclear technology. Um, in the U.S. for a long time, like the, the climate movement, um, environmental, the environmental movement, movement yeah. was anti-nuclear power. Yeah. Climate change has changed that. You know, the stats are pretty stark. Nuclear power plants generate about a fifth of the electricity in the U.S. and about half of our carbon-free electricity. Um, nuclear plants in the U.S. are getting shut down because it's actually cheaper to get power from natural gas. So, you know, would I prefer that all our power come from, you know, solar panels and stuff? Absolutely. Do I think that's feasible today? Not even close. So I guess my position would be do not close down existing plants. Keep investing in R&D to figure out how to make them safer and more efficient. But I mean, I think right now nuclear kind of has to be part of the answer. Yeah, this is a really interesting question, and and again, I welcome you know listeners. You know, yeah, tell me why I'm wrong. T- tell tell us why we're wrong. I um, I when I was in Glasgow, you know, uh, at the climate change summit, I, I talked to a bunch of people, and and one of the things that kept coming up was this: like these emissions goals, um, the speed of transition that is required, is kind of like it's hard to see absent some technological breakthrough that that just we're not that hasn't happened that we're not aware of um or like a mass scaling up of the potential of like hydropower or something nuclear is the only way it has to be a part of the equation here and the couple of examples i'd give um one is germany right so after fukushima um merkel decided to basically shut down germany's nuclear power plants that decision is part of what contributed to the building of these pipelines to bring in more oil and gas from Russia. So both increasing dependence on fossil fuels, climate issue, and increasing dependence on Russia. Um, And that shows you kind of the danger of walking away from nuclear, at least before you have renewable alternatives to nuclear, right? That's one thing. The other thing is, and this is something I heard about in Glasgow and not from the French, by the way, the French get a lot of their power from nuclear. Um, And one of the things that that, that is going to be required to allow the developing world to, to, to not rely on fossil fuels is to give them quicker and available sources of energy mm-hmm. on a big scale. Yeah. And nuclear plants are actually like a an available option for that because, you know, people know how to build them. You know, people know how to get energy out of them. And, and, and that can be done on a timeline that is feasible for this transition. So, again, I'm 
there are environmental reasons to be concerned about nuclear power. There are security reasons. Storage of the waste. Yeah, storage yeah. of the waste. You know, there are national security reasons. Like, are there proliferation risks with you know uh, relying on on nuclear? That said, um, I'm currently in a place where it's hard for me to see how we don't return to um, a, a global reliance to some extent, not like a, a whole extent. You obviously want those other renewables uh, on nuclear. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crooked World. Mm-hmm. 
Chandru on Twitter asks, how can we take collective global action when at any given point about half the countries have right-leaning governments that do not prioritize climate? The Paris Accords were a decent starting point, but it's the bare minimum we can do. Fair. Fair. And, you know, uh, you heard we talked to Justin Trudeau about this a bit. I mean, there's kind of a a multi-track here approach. Like one is like elections, right? And trying to elect people who care about climate change. Um, That should be taken as a given. And that requires, as as Justin Trudeau said, like some either persuasion um, of people who aren't convinced on climate change or or designing policies. Like he talked about designing his cap and trade to basically provide like a subsidy yep. uh, to, to to individuals. You yeah. know, um, well that that certainly makes it more attractive. I think beyond that, though, we have to understand, and this is a really important thing for the climate movement generally. Um, and this is something else I took away from the Glasgow experience where it kind of so underperformed people's expectations. Um, and, and for a lot of reasons, e- here, even where you had a government committed to climate change, because Joe Manchin isn't, uh, we are probably not going to spend the several hundred billion dollars uh, that was going to be a good down payment on transition. We have to accept that governments just are not going to do enough. You know, we have to keep pushing on that and trying to change that. But that means pressuring businesses, pressuring private sector, pressuring financial institutions. And people, understandably and rightly, I think, roll their eyes at, you know, these climate finance declarations that are made, uh, you know, trillions of dollars in finance for renewables or when companies make these kind of vague promises to be carbon neutral by some year in the future, you know. But that it actually may be that that activism needs to be directed at much at corporations and financial institutions as governments um, um, so that we we aren't just sitting back and waiting for governments to do the right thing here. You know, yeah. it's really about moving money into clean energy and out of fossil fuels as fast as possible. And then lastly, it's also about individual and consumer choices, right? Like, how are you powering your home or, you know, like how much energy are you using? Like, um, and... And so I think that like there has to be kind of a whole of society approach taken to climate so that you're not putting all your eggs in the in the government basket, frankly. Uh, so what it sounds like you're saying is that you are an investor in the company that the former CEO of WeWork started to put carbon credits on the blockchain. This dude, Adam Newman, raised $70 million, most of it from uh, A16Z. Would you give more money to the WeWork guy, though? Like, Probably not. <laughs> yeah, no. it's, it's not the first guy. He, neither he or Jared Kushner that, is the guy that I would. That uh, sounds like a nesting doll of scams. Y- yeah, yeah. Like give give a bunch of money to uh, to, to invest. I, but no, I do think yeah. there is a, a real place for um, for private sector investment, especially in like big swing shit like fusion technology, right? Because yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of those companies are going to fail. Yeah, like I don't look. I I would I deeply profoundly support government action. And as I said to Justin Trudeau, like the government can accelerate climate changes in ways that nobody else can because yep. it can change the law and change the regulations. But like even in this country, like we could lose Congress and not have a shot at passing climate legislation for a while. Even if we pass it, we have this kind of right wing reactionary Supreme Court that might strike down those laws. Like we just have to be working every lever we can we can pull here. Yeah. And and these I don't you know the technolo- we're going to be able to solve this with technological breakthroughs is kind of a, a right wing non climate denying talking point. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that like pressing and pushing and pressuring 
in every direction that you can isn't still something that you have to do to hedge against government inaction. Yeah, and also just remember that, you know, I don't make want to make anyone feel bad here, but the US historically speaking is responsible for like one third of the total excess carbon ever released in the atmosphere through the Industrial Revolution. So I think our job here has to just be to lead and create economic incentives that make it easier for other countries to follow and not like make this just a collective action bottleneck where everyone whines like, well, if India doesn't do it and China doesn't do it, what's the point of us doing it? Like, that, we yeah. have to. Yeah, we, we, get, to. we got to get off that mentality. It's also not binary. It's yeah. like progress is progress. Um, Will on Twitter wants to know, what are some of the issues, trends we, you don't focus on too much, but which you think are going to be front page issues in the next three to five years? Um, ben, do you have time to take an edible? No, man, I wish I did. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyway, just yeah, pretend yeah, you did. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. here's mine. Okay. Artificial intelligence. I've been reading this book yep. about AI. No one knows when it's going to happen, but at some point, 20 years, 50 years, 200 years, we're going to have machines that are smarter than us. And those machines will know how to program themselves to become even smarter machines, like ad infinitum. Yeah. And we have no idea where that's going to lead. And the movie version of this is always like very, very dark, you know, from Terminator to Ex Machina. At least we win in Terminator. Spoiler alert. But, um, <laughs> you know, like... We ultimately will have to code some sort of ethics into these machines, into what their goal is and what they want to do. Um, or I don't know, it seems like it's maybe debatable whether we'll be able to code ethics into things that become super intelligent. So um, fascinating, kind of scary to think about. Um, I'm not thrilled when I think about the current crop of technology big thinkers and the concern they're showing with current technologies about like ethics in morality, I'm also worried that humans seem predisposed to use all new things to hurt each other. So, you know. Well, there's a war, you know, there's an aspect to this, like, the like, and, and not just the kind of Terminator, Blade Runner, or like the killer robots angle, but AI is going to be normalized in warfare, yeah. you know, uh, in ways that reduce the cost of, to, in human life, to launching wars. Did you see the taser drone that yeah. some company floated for schools? Yeah. I mean, just crazy shit is already yeah. And to, to build surveillance states like we see yeah. in, in, in Western China. Um, that's, meta trend? Yeah, that's a good meta trend. I would say, because, you know, we know, we talked about climate. Um, three to five years, like, is a good timeline for, for Taiwan to potentially boil. I think the thing I would spotlight um, that we talk about, but not as something that is going to get like exponentially more intense is migration. Mm -hmm. Now, like the current estimate from IOM, the UN Migration Agency, is that there are 281 million uh, international migrants wow. uh, in 2020. Mostly by um, wars, right? Yeah. And, and But it's wars. It's also just like the, the population growth in the developing world is is so enormous. And there is now technology, right, that, that allows people – to see what life is like in different places, to have, like, to be put in touch with human traffickers or smuggling routes. Um, the idea that you're just going to stop migration, which is kind of the default political um, point in, the, in, in most advanced democracies, these numbers are going to be multiplying, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, like, as climate change also kicks in and there's resource scarcity and yep. some of the most intense resource scarcity cities I mean places like South Asia and, and places along the equator, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I just think that we don't have a system globally 
to manage migration flows. That system is already broken. And it's not just about finding homes for refugees. It's just about the idea that enormous amounts of human beings are going to be on the move in ways that bring political instability and in ways in which there's just there's nothing that can absorb that, right? And so when I look out 5, 10, 20 years, you're right. Like climate change, the development of new technologies and AI and the questions that that's going to raise, the migration of people, like this is the future that we're going to be dealing with. And it, it, it's not, you know, these kind of niche national security issues that have dominated our debates the last, you know, 20, you know North Korea or Iran, like big meta trends uh, are going to be remaking the, the world around us. Yeah. Ella on Twitter, great name. Uh, Love that name. From Northern Ireland, but I live in Madrid. That's cool. A few months ago, Ted Cruz gave a big speech to Vox members, the Spanish far-right party. Are the Dems and the other left-wing parties across the world doing enough to work together, not just Dems meeting with UK Labor? P.S. David Lamy for PM. Ben, this, this is, feels like it was written for you. Yeah, yeah. The answer is no. We're not doing enough. Um, I, I thought this for a while. We talked about this on the show. I'll try to be concrete about it in a way in a moment. I, I will say that like one of the times this really hit me is I went to Spain, I went to Madrid, mm-hmm. uh, where Ella's currently living, um, having selected a different weather environment than, than Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. although Northern Ireland's really beautiful. Um, Belfast, great movie. Belfast, great movie. Um, and I was there like the week after Steve Bannon had visited Spain to kind of bless the new Vox party, Boo. right? And the thing to me that I'd say about this is that, like, um, there's an asymmetry in terms of how the right coordinates and how the left coordinates. You know, the the left, at best, you have conferences, and I, I'm going to one in Copenhagen mm-hmm. this week. Right. It's a democracy conference, right? right? Um, but, like, you have conferences, you have parliamentary exchanges. Yeah, you have, like, the David Lammies of the world meeting with the, the Chris Murphys of the world, and that's great. That's all really important stuff. Um, but there's a couple things missing. Like one is, I think we do, implicit in, in the question, we do need to look more than just kind of Democratic Party, Labor Party. Like, I don't think there's the connectivity with some of the other social democratic parties in Europe or the Green parties. Certainly not with, um, you know, emerging progressive leaders in places like Latin America, like Gabriel Boric, who we talked about with Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So, so you need better connectivity among parties globally on the center left to the progressive left. But then really importantly, if you look at what the right does, these are not just people meeting with each other. They share political strategies. They share political messaging. They literally share media platforms. Oh, right? yeah. So they, they, like, they have a crooked media, like a global crooked media. Bannon you know? has like, international interviews all the time. Yeah. And, and, but th- then they're also like, there's like versions of Breitbart in different countries, yeah. right? Um, they, 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 it, it, by the way, they share rich donor types who buy up the media, right? So if you look at the, the inroads for the right in places like Central and Eastern Europe, you literally have like right-wing people buying up media and turning them into propaganda and, and organs, right? Yep. In a way that like we feel you know, gets our hands dirty, yep. right? And so I, I think that the, this, the leap that needs to be taken is not just on the dialogue, but on literally the much more active coordination among progressives, people on the center left, in the media space, in the social media space, in the messaging space, in the ways in which political campaigns are run. 
one of the better things that happened out of, out of the Obama years in this, you know, where where we we had a lot of Democratic backsliding, but some of the people that modeled their own politics on the Obama 08 campaign were Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so like that was a toolbox. And it made me think like we should have created a roadshow after the 08 campaign to go teach people how to do that. Well, know? unfortunately, some of our consultants did and they, uh, they picked some bad horses from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they weren't the right consultants, but we won't <laughs> name any names. Uh, um, um, Everyone some, knows who we're thinking Yeah. Sometimes they're the right ones though. But uh, so I, d I just think it has to be like the toolkit has to be brought into here. Yeah. And, and, and I'd say this too, like I would like to see the, the U.S. administration be more willing to, to, to dabble in this, right? So like Trump, when he was president, had did you know didn't worry about went over making, to the UK and fucked with them about Brexit. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't make his. He didn't. Wasn't bashful of making his preferences known. Like I think it was difficult because of the war in Ukraine, obviously. But like you know, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, kind of you know, you didn't hear them put a thumb on the scale in the Hungary election. I mean, you have to. Sometimes it can help. Sometimes it can yeah, hurt. It can, it can hurt, but but I do just think that like we have an interest. If we have an interest in democracy succeeding. Not in like, I'm not talking about like meddling in elections. I'm just talking about like yeah. building no, no, solidarity. I, you know? Totally. Of course, of course, of course. And David Lammy would make a great prime minister. Great yeah. prime minister. But we'll start as foreign minister. He's shadow foreign minister. So that's a nice uh, I just want start. Boris to go down. I just want Boris to go down. Be nice to not have to look at that guy. Um, Glenn on Twitter. I assume Glenn Beck. Glenn Robinson. Glenn Greenwald. Greenwald. One <laughs> yeah, of the Glens. Yeah, yeah. What would it take to make people care more about what's happening in Myanmar? It's a great question. Glenn. I would start by saying it would just take a lot of concerned people like you, you know, like the Saved Our Four movement was an incredibly effective uh, grassroots organization. I mean, there was some money behind it, but it was an amazing like grassroots organization. Coney uh, 2012 was a deeply flawed, <laughs> deeply, deeply flawed effort to bring attention to an issue. But like, I just do think those sort of show that citizen activism can go a very, very long way. I mean, obviously, in the ideal world, you are not doing it you know, just from your laptop in California, you are like lifting up the stories and voices and opinions of people in Myanmar or the diaspora. But I mean, th there's some there's some space here for civil society. You know, it's interesting, and and I'm glad we got this question. I, I actually I was talking to someone um, uh, from the Myanmar opposition recently in the kind of like a Zoom thing, and you know, they were saying like it's obviously continued to be very bad there. <laughs> um, the military is not like loosening its grip. But the, you know, the opposition, there've been a substantial number of military defections. The point that, that she was making um, is that there's both the ongoing humanitarian and political catastrophe of this coup, but there's also an ongoing resistance that is yeah. very broad and deep. And in terms of the question, you know, one example is actually the first time that people got American in Myanmar when Aung San Suu Kyi was in prison, mm -hmm. you know, Burma was a pretty distant place, disconnected from like kind of core American national security interests. But there was this kind of interesting movement that built up around her, but also around rights in Burma generally that included, you know, a lot of civil society organizations, the Burmese diaspora, a, a lot of like there's a, a, a like faith-based organizations because yeah. there's left and right there's baptist uh yeah there's Bath baptist uh, ethnic minorities there and what those people did that was smart is they found champions in congress right who took up this issue 
Um, by the way, bizarrely, including Mitch McConnell, but that's a whole separate story. I know. It is um, weird. There is that whole history. Because even when something doesn't have broad public attention, if you have like tenacious champions in Congress, like that will keep this on the agenda, will keep sources of funding and oversight of the issue. And so it, it's about building that kind of broad civil society uh, movement that keeps attention on something that targets Congress to to be involved. And it doesn't have to be every member, but just find those champions that mobilizes diaspora populations who care about this. Um, and and frankly, like if, you, if there's a national security frame to this, Burma, I would argue, is at the nexus of a lot of things we care about: the democracy versus autocracy piece, China, um, and China's rising influence in the world. Um, the, you know, natural resources. There are like a lot of intersecting American priorities uh, in in Burma, um, and and so I do think that like going back and looking at the playbook used in the 80s and 90s to pressure the Burmese government around Aung San Suu Kyi and political freedoms um, and treatment of ethnic minorities yeah. is important. But then also maintaining and building connectivity to the Burmese opposition, you know, um, so that they are. You know, they have lines into Washington and New York and Los Angeles and yeah. places that have influenced in this country. That matters too. Free Tibet is another good example. Yeah. Obviously, it was ultimately they have not achieved their no, goal. No. And frankly, it's completely faded from the limelight. But again, like, you know, there were massive concerts in the in the mid 90s. It was sort of like a cause celeb, literally. And, yeah. you know, um, and one worth studying. This is a hard one, Ben. Jonathan on Twitter, if you could be nominated ambassador to any non-NATO, non-G20 country, which would it be and why? It's a lot of the, the, the nons here are hard. I'd say Vietnam. I thought you might say that. Yeah. I, and here's why. Like it checks all my boxes, right? It's food. Food. Uh, like it, let's face it. That's probably first. Amazing food. Right? Like it, just, just amazing food. Um, important country. Like really mm-hmm. like in, 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 in it's an important country in really interesting ways. It's like right at the nexus of like the China, U.S., competition right at the heart of this emerging region in Southeast Asia. Great travel options, right? So mm-hmm. like if you're in Vietnam, you can hopscotch around Southeast Asia. You know, you can see totally. a part of the world that is fascinating and diverse and compelling with lots of good food. Yeah. Um, Vietnamese people. Super friendly people. In my experience, like some of the very best people, as, as one of our former presidents would say. But yeah. like the it's super like nice, charming, compelling um, uh, you know, uh, so I, I, I like, I'd go with the history. Yep. Like you, you have to wrestle with this very complicated history, try to overcome it. Um, there, there's, there are issues that go with that, like the cleanup of Asian orange and, uh, and there's a lot of stuff happening there. It's yeah. That's a really good one. I was thinking this, it's less of a, it's more of a safe call, but New Zealand would be incredible. Oh yeah. Like one of the most beautiful places in the world. I know the language that helps. Yeah. Uh, I'm, far less likely to get shot in a mass shooting because they actually have gun laws. That's yeah. actually not a joke. Um, you can scout out your zombie apocalypse property. Totally. I could yeah. probably meet Peter Jackson. There can yeah. be that many people yeah. there. Amazing yeah. political leadership. Yeah. With Jacinda. I mean, again, you know, not the most convenient place to travel from, but if there's another pandemic, like, I feel like I'm good. Yeah. Literally on an island. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. that that That's a good, like, uh, that'd be on my top five for sure. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, 
you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Uh, this might be the easiest question we've ever gotten from Ben on Twitter. I'm not sure if it's you or Ben LeBolt. Um, What's your favorite Pearl Jam album? I mean, how do you not say 10? I think I'm a little different than you. What do you got? I got, I got verses. I got VS. You like verses yeah, better yeah, than 10? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's uh, shocking to me. I, 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 look, I mean, we can all, uh, like 10 is obviously a thing that started it all, but there's a development and like depth to the, uh, the sound and lyrics and verses that I like. The, uh, the Obama party over the summer that everyone flipped out about for absolutely no reason yeah. for COVID reasons. I found myself in the like Porta John with Eddie Vedder after having had several cocktails. And I think I said something to him like, thank you for making all the music that defined my middle school and high school years. I, I, this may be like, I, I'm just maybe a little too revealing, but like when I was, cause like versus like, came out of like probably like the height of my teen angst, right? I was probably like 16 or something. Mm-hmm. And like like elderly women behind the counter. You Great know, song. Like, uh, Great song. I see. Yeah. Recognize. yeah that yeah. low like, range. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, like that hit me. Like that hit me very directly um, in the solar plexus. I, I hate to sound like old nerds, but um, there is like a viral tweet that someone sends me once every six months, which shows like seven albums that all came out in the same basically 44-day period in 91. There was like Pearl Jam 10, Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, the Metallica Black Album, Soundgarden, Bad Moto Finger, which I didn't really listen to, yeah. and then Nirvana, Nevermind. Like some of the more iconic albums it's of a good, the decade. I mean, those are some fucking bangers right there. I mean, I do think like, you know, the Chris Cornell stands, I, I get it, but like I, Soundgarden is kind of sneaking on that list. I will say, if you if you collapsed Use Your Illusion into one album, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that like just just a monster monster it's also a strange don't cry november rain that was also the height of the video the music video was like an art mtv was i was having a conversation with someone today like i know this happens all the time constantly throughout history things are massively relevant and they get replaced but it is still hard to explain to people how big of a deal mtv was and now it's just kind of gone yeah and guns and and how big a deal guns and roses was right they unfortunately could never follow that up because they you know like couldn't get along or drugs or whatever. They did have the best album name for the follow-up that took them like 20 years to do and it wasn't very good, Chinese Democracy. Uh-huh. Very Worldo album title. <laughs> yeah. And a great If GNR had actually, here's a uh, what if of history. If GNR had put out an album in like 1992 that was as good as Usual Illusion called Chinese Democracy, would China be a democracy? Great, great question. 
that would have been their wind of change. Yeah. Um, it's also hard to overstate how different Nirvana sounded compared to almost everything else at the time. It was just like blew your head off. I grew up with the hair bands and like the 80s stuff. And like when suddenly like there's Kurt Cobain, it was like a fucking... Just the man. And 10 came out right then too. Yeah. So it was like those yeah. were the two... Seattle grunge. Those were the two things. Because what's interesting about that list is that Use Your Illusion is kind of the best and end of the hair rock period. Yep. And then like 10 and... and, and uh, smells like Teen Spirit are obviously the beginning of. Yeah. We're officially getting made fun of for talking about uh, 90s music. Yeah, so much. yeah, yeah. Uh, Anna wants to know advice for young adults wanting to get into foreign policy work after college grad school. This is a hard one because I lucked my way into it. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I got a job with Barack Obama on a 2004 campaign, got interested in the issues, sort of worked for the right person. I, I was a lot luckier than I was smart. You went more the think tanky. Route. I went the think tank route, but then like the the luck I had was working on a campaign um, that elected Barack Obama president, you know. And not um, listening to the people who said, uh, if you don't work for Hillary, you'll oh, be blackballed in this I got, time. I literally got taken out for like multiple times before I uh, moved out to Chicago with you guys. Hey, don't work on that campaign because he's going to lose and then you won't get a job and all this. Rest. I will say this, uh, and, like I have a lot of coffees with you know, people, younger people on this question. And what I say to them is like, there's actually a lot more, number one, don't resume build. Right. Uh -huh. So don't be like, well, I have to get this master's degree and then this internship right. program to then I want to be that, you know, if I had tried to do that, I actually never would have ended up in the White House. Um, granted that I had some luck. But two, it's much a, a bigger field that you have to run with, particularly if you're like fresh out of college or grad school, because people tend to think it's like, do I go through a career in government? And that's great. But there's campaigns, right? Campaigns lead to government jobs in ways that allow you to, you know, get to work with the principal, get to know politics and then come in. But then also there are international NGOs th that I think people don't think about enough, you know, like get mm -hmm. out in the field. Like you're young, you have flexibility, go live Peace somewhere Corps. else. There's Peace Corps. There's th this, you know, the, the, the bigger ones, the Save the Children's and the IRCs, mm -hmm. but then there are the smaller ones, some really interesting, compelling small NGOs around the world doing accountability work or doing development work. Um, uh, so, so, there, there's like a, a diversity of, of ways into this. Yeah, then there's the think tank group, be like the young person helping to set up conferences or right. do research for someone who's writing a book. Um, and, and so what I would advise is take a long look at the biggest possible spectrum, you know, media, like, you know, go work on a mm -hmm. doc, doc for a documentary production company on something. Yeah. There, there's lots of ways into this and take advantage of the flexibility you have in your 20s to be able to pick up and go live someplace else, whether exactly. that's a political campaign or another country. And like, look, you know, the traditional paths are join the military, take the foreign service exam, yeah. or join you know, the intel communities. Yeah. Pretty damn interesting. And those are all interesting paths, and I encourage them, but I also, like, there are, yeah, there are broader, there's broader ways of doing this. Uh, at Geek Ken, I think this one is, uh, when hitting international airports, do you hit the airline lounges or hang out in the general terminal? Prefer skipping lounges myself. I don't really have, I guess it depends on how long the layover is. Like sometimes, what is it, like 50 bucks to go to like the Delta Lounge or something? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, that's a big, if you're, if you're there for eight hours, I would hit the lounge. So here's the thing. I'm actually an airport guy. Um, for Like sometimes they hit the lounge because like if they have like the free wine, you know. Oh, um, absolutely. But, and the buffet. Yeah. But like I actually love airports. Um, and this is probably like a pre-COVID point but it, it you know it still holds like if you're it, like a long layover and like a like 
like a weird Asian airport, like Singapore or like Japan has some like fascinating airport. Like I just kind of walk around. Yeah. I just kind of wander around and I just kind of like people watch. And in Europe, they're and, just malls. And in Europe, they've got these kind of weird upscale malls. And then and you can always kind of stop and get a beer somewhere. Yeah. And so I actually like, 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 like the more foreign the airport is, the more into it I get. And I do like to just kind of like wander, people watch, buy something weird, like have like the local food, have a beer. Like I actually love, like that's kind of a happy space for me. Yeah, it's like I agree. A, There's something, I mean, Obama used to always sort of, this was his one complaint about the presidency. There is something just really fun about wandering in a crowd, anonymous. Something like cool and freeing about it. It, it. In airports, like I feel like I'm stepping out of all the anxieties in my life and I'm just in this kind of weird transitory place, you know, where I'm like, weirdly not stressed unless I'm trying to make a plane. Yeah, that part sucks. I do like, you know, I also like, I get, I mean, you get this, I'm sure too. Like, I like the occasional world though. Like you're walking yeah, through some to... airport in like some random city and someone's like, hey, world over here. Hey, and I'm like, yeah. like, hey, Jared sucks. I'm like, yeah. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one time I left my, I was coming back from a trip in Europe and I left my laptop on a plane and then I crossed out of the Eurozone into like, and I had to figure out how to get back in and it was a nightmare. So don't do that um, is the answer. One time I, Back when I was uh, a smoker, um, I left my passport in one of those like weird- The lounges? Yeah. Oof. And I was in like Singapore. Oof. And I could have been completely fucked. Like like completely- like, Yeah. Or, 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 yeah. And <laughs> and a very nice person like gave it to like the very nice pr- person at the- um, I don't know if I can get arrested for even saying this, but no, like, uh, like can you? Yeah, yeah. No, they was just like, wow, like I, like one of the big bullets in life I dodged. So That's a bad don't one. do that. Don't, don't do leave that. Your, don't take your passport out of your pocket. Um, I'm going to summarize this one for Andrew on Twitter. He's got some Republican friends. What is the 60 second pitch? What's the elevator pitch for why Democrats are better than Republicans on foreign policy? Well, um, I want to say we get into fewer wars. Yeah, I, I was about to but say I think like about the ones Obama started in Iraq, and I think I need to caveat that a little more. Well, we didn't start the one in Iraq. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm saying yeah. Libya. You know, Libya. People. I'm just. I'm thinking about what people are going to re- at me. I would because like like there's a couple ways to go on this, uh, and I didn't workshop this before because it's good to kind of talk it through. Um, um, because like one way to do is like the the Republicans got us into war in Iraq. <laughs> Full stop, that's, right? You that's know what I mean? Like, and people like say, well, Democrats voted the, for it well. Yeah, we voted against it no, too. The, the, the five-second you know. pitch is like the Iraq war yes. is where Republican foreign policy led us. Yes. And it destroyed the world order and it led to the rapid diminution of American influence uh, and the denigration of democracy promotion around the world. Um, and and here we are, right? So like that may be the shortest one. Um, I, I think the longer one is it actually like Republicans have no foreign policy right now. They don't know whether they're hawks who like to get into wars or America firsters like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Democrats have a strong, steady, competent, reliable foreign policy that tries to keep America out of wars while keeping us safe and advocating for democratic values. And if you're a Republican who liked Ronald Reagan and the things he stood for, your party doesn't stand for that anymore. Um, if you're a Democrat who didn't like the Iraq war, like we're the ones trying to prevent the next one. I mean, I think I actually do think Democrats have much more real estate on foreign policy than Republicans have. Here's what I'd say. I figured it out while you're talking. Uh, 
9-11 happened on George W. Bush's watch, and then he invaded the wrong country in response. Yeah. Do you think that's a good policy? Have at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's right. The elevator pitch point is a good one. And and, and, and the elevator pitch for us um, in, in the Obama, I think we had a good one in 08, um, which was essentially like Barack Obama opposed this war that never should have been right. waged. He will- Authorize or waged. Yeah. yeah. It's Hillary Clinton. Yeah, we'll shout Hillary. Yeah. Uh, he will wind down the wars, focus on the terrorists that actually attacked us, and restore America's standing and support for democratic values around the world. It's good sell. And that was like a really good, tight pitch. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, the world's a little more, weirdly more complicated. It seemed complicated then. Um, but it's something like that, that combines like the critique with like the, the quick, because like, if you want to be proud to be an American, if you want to be, and this is something I would say to kind of patriotic Republicans, if you want to be proud of your country on the world stage and stand for things on the world stage, and have an example of setting a democratic example in this country that is relevant around the world, like the only option is to support Democrats. Like, yeah. like the the rest of the world looks at Republicans as as a, a party that is increasingly not um, trustworthy, not competent, and not supportive of democratic values. Certainly, um, nationalist and uh, not focused on the singular threat that the entire planet faces, which is climate change. Is that too? Yeah. Um, George wants to know, he says, there's a lot going on in the world. Can you guys talk about the NBA Finals for two minutes before getting into the heavy stuff? This is tough because we're recording this on Wednesday, June 8th. It's going to go out a week from today. I don't know what we we'll can know say. The answer. We'll know the answer. Yeah, it'll be incredibly dated. But I will say, I mean, this is like my dream series. These two teams are just so fun and young and shoot the lights out when they want to. And everybody seems to be able to like, I mean... The Celtics turned it on in that game one fourth quarter in a way you rarely see a team do. And then um, Steve Kerr drew up some plan coming out of halftime and the Warriors destroyed the Celtics in the third quarter of the second game in a way that's just like, I don't know, nobody else can do what Steph does and what Clay does when he's on. And it's just, it's a blast. Yeah, I, I guess what I'd say is like this series is like why I, I love the NBA and I think it's doing the best of any of the major professional sports right now. Cause it has all the things I love about the NBA. It's got high wattage stars like Steph Curry. It's got really amazing young guys who you know are gonna do huge things like Jason Tatum. It's got kind of weird mixes of different lineups, you know, that these teams can run out. Mm -hmm. It's got like, eccentric personalities like Draymond Green. Marcus Smart. It's got like politically active like coaches like Teams Steve coaches, Kerr. yeah. And Ime Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's got the international component. Yeah, we're doing Nigerian politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's we, cool. You know, the international component of both players and coaches. So like if you look at the, this series, it encompasses a lot of why the NBA is like of all the leagues, the one that I feel like is in a groove right now. They definitely embraced these guys being themselves and saying what they want to say in a way that I think is like benefiting the league in the long run. You know, Charlie Kirk can pretend he's turning off sports for the rest of his life. Clay Travis, all these guys can whine about it, but like they're all watching. The whole world's watching. Yeah, I, d I don't think the NBA's like suffered because, <laughs> no. you know, uh, like some right-wingers like to attack them over. Someone took a knee in yeah, yeah. 2017. Uh, this is a random one, Ben, from Caesar on Twitter. Uh, ben, for the last World Cup, you told me at your book tour stop in Seattle that Argentina was going to go all the way. Whoa, some, account true? some accountability from Caesar. Yeah, who are you rooting for this year and who's going to win it all? That's some real accountability because, I, 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 you know, I was obviously not right about that. Um, I'm rooting for the, um, say, the country of Qatar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, the big you know, I, I like the English team. 
Interesting. Okay. The um, the pander choice would have just been to say Ukraine. I don't even know if they're in. No, it. They, they are. They're 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 pro- they have to win one more qualifying match to get in. I think they beat Scotland, and I think they had to beat Wales. Um, but I, England's got like you know they almost won the Euro. They they've got this young team, super interesting guys. Um, one one of these cups they're going to break through. Dude, the the England's in the U.S. draw. Well, we could both get what out of the draw. What side are you on? We could both get out of the draw. <laughs> it's us, like, England, uh, Iran, and Euro playoff. Uh, that's Ukraine. That, that's probably, oh, that's cool. Uh, so, like, it'd probably be uh, Ukraine. So, um, I don't know. Um, but I think, I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll tentatively go with England, but people shouldn't be taken. I'm no man in a blazer here. I, I know. Like, I'm doing this limited series with Roger Bennett uh, later this year. Yeah. Like, one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. If you love soccer, you should listen to the Men in Blazers podcast. You should also read his book, too, because the guy just, like, born and raised in Liverpool, moved to the U.S., like, loves America more than any human being I know. That's, like, when Republican demagogue immigrants, it's always the immigrants who love this country more super than anybody you know. Like, like super The zeal people. of the yeah. converted, right? Yeah. Um, but we're going to talk a lot about the institution of FIFA sports washing, like, and how sports hard it washing is. is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, you, I'm sure you feel the same way that I do about the NFL. Sometimes like I love football. I watch football every Sunday. I played football in high school. I like, I, I can't not watch it, but like there's some real moral qualms with the league, the way they make decisions, the way players are treated, the way injuries are not focused on. Right. And so I think Roger has similar frustrations and feelings about FIFA you know, the the international body, the decision-making, the leaders, the bribes, the corruption. I have to tell you, though, this has actually started to really impact my, and this is not a virtue signal, I swear to God, but like the NFL, the, it's just something uncomfortable. Like Roger Goodell seems like a pretty gigantic tool. Horrible like, guy. Like, Compared to Adam Silver, the, the, he runs yeah, the NBA. Yeah, concussion stuff. And the, the, I'm, I'm like a basketball, baseball guy. Mm-hmm. I, look, I love football. I'll still watch it. Um, so I get, I, I get it. And like soccer, one of the challenges, I, I love it, but like it, it is hard to unpack the kind of web of international soccer, you know? It is gross. Yeah. When you really, I mean, those guys were just like the most, they were just handing out bags of cash in envelopes. Yeah. It was just yeah. brazen. Brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lisa on Twitter asks, what's a book maybe you read in high school or college that made you think you wanted to learn more about the world as opposed to the United States? It's a really hard question. That's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I'd say as a, as a starting point um, that like doesn't directly answer the question, but to me, like I, I studied abroad um, mm-hmm. and it was like completely transformative to me because it was like- Where were you? Uh, I was in Paris. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, like the you uh, ripping uh, butts on the Seine. I was, man. It was good. <laughs> Those are good times. Writing fiction. But I remember I was there doing like the. I'm really dating myself. We can get some serious like. Uh, Let me guess. You were worried about Mad Cow. No, it was the Clinton impeachment. Oh, and okay. the French thought that was the funniest fucking thing in the world. Oh, really? They're like, what are you talking about? Like our <laughs> president had like his, you know, uh, you know, mistress at his funeral. Like, but like, I'm not saying I agreed with that because there's a lot of hair on the Clinton, like Clinton impeachment. You know. Uh, Clinton's behavior is not age well. Uh, yeah, yeah, the point I'm making is that like seeing my country through a radically different perspective. Yeah. That's the thing was like, wait a second, I want to understand. Like it, it was both getting to know a, a foreign place, but it was also like looking at where I was from, from the perspective of like a, a foreign lens, you know, that to me was like, oh, this can change how I think about everything. Cause it can change not just like, oh, I can learn about this other culture. It's also like, 
I can look at my own culture from 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 another window, you know? Yeah, I, I had a very similar experience when I studied abroad. I was in Italy, um, mostly in Florence. We traveled everywhere. That's another good place. I visited some some friends. I had that Eurorail pass and like the cool, yeah. amazing. But all, you know, this was like right when the this was pre nine eleven. This was right when the Eurozone was sort of about to be coming to fruition, so it was easy to get around. And also, you know, look the the kind of the version of U.S. history that you and I were taught in school started in 1776. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you're, I know that's obviously like very fucked up, but when you're in a country like Italy and you're running around and you're seeing, you know, Roman ruins to, you know, Renaissance artists, I mean, you just like the sweep of yeah, these places it and just the, the history that they're taught. Yeah, it's, just... it's, it stretches your understanding of things. I think for me on the books front, um, it was usually novels. Uh, I, I remember... Um, uh, taking a lot of classes in like foreign literature in college. And I remember reading A Hundred Years of Solitude by mm. Gabriel uh, Marquez. And it was just like, oh, I, like similarly to studying abroad, it was like, like these people are just looking at the world in a totally different way that's super yeah. interesting, you know? God, I wish I remembered more of the things I read in high school and college. Yeah. I don't know that I used yeah, my time I, that well. Yeah, I, I was stretching my you know, brain to remember a book. And then I remember a couple of those classes I took. Um, it was good classes, though. Great classes. Modern um, European literature, Terrence Studi. Uh, nice. You know what's funny? Kenyon College is this little bastion of, like, insane liberalism in rural Ohio. But the political science department was, like, super right-wing, neocon, Leo Straussian. And I didn't really know it at the time. I think they were all probably big Bush supporters and yeah. whatnot. And I'm sure it like filtered in. It obviously didn't impact my views, but um, I weird. took my political science classes at the Baker Institute at Rice. Nice. James, James A. Baker. Did he so. teach classes? No, he didn't. But like the you know, and and I don't know that the 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 faculty was particularly right wing, but like there was a there was definitely like a presence of that Bush Baker. George P. Bush went to college with me. I took a class with him. Really? Yeah, I was. I took uh, Greek tragedy. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Wait a second. I never is, thought about how funny that is. Um, <laughs> that, like the, I took Greek tragedy with George P. Bush. Uh, that's incredible. That's incredible. It's literally what I did. We read like Euripides and stuff. We read, we read oh Sophocles. God. Like, uh, boy, like that's interesting to think about now. That right? that yeah. is the lead of a Mark Leibovich uh, profile like, if I've ever yeah, heard one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last question, just for kicks. This is from Noel. Why do Noel's uh, favorite Taylor Swift song? Big fan of 1989 Red Album. So this is a really important question, Noel, because I have two daughters who are five oh, okay. and seven. So I listen to like an extraordinary amount of Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. um, I'm friends with Emily Favreau. They so I do absolutely the same. love Taylor Swift. My personal favorite is Cardigan. Okay. Right. Like I like that folklore album. It's a great album. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard. And my kids kind of you know like what kids do they move past it and I'd be like. Hey, let's just throw on uh, folklore here, guys, and you know, uh, and and so that's my number one. I will say, um, of the, the the like, shake it off is like eternal, mm -hmm. and my kids love shake it off, and they do dances and stuff, and it's cute, you know. She is uh, an incredible songwriter. Uh, work clearly works her ass off because that album was written and produced in the pandemic, I believe. And is like one of those artists who's smart enough to work with great people. Like I think she does a lot of work with Jack Antonoff from yeah. the Bleachers. Yeah, not the Bleachers. Bleachers. I've been corrected. Um, oh, and she's got the the national. Yeah, um, the national she's got writing. Bonnie Bear and like all these guys. You know, like the, she she's really she's super interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I also just respect artists that embrace collaboration and give credit. And like she features them in the documentaries that she does for yeah. like Disney Plus or whatever about these shows. The people who pretend. 
that they just like hide and grind it out all by themselves are full of shit. That's just not how it works. You know what's funny, which Emily Favreau appreciate, is that my kids, uh, we had explained to them because they like my oldest can read, so they, she reads the songs in the car, and we had to explain what Taylor's version was. Mm. And now they only want to listen. I, like they got mad, really, because then folklore doesn't say Taylor's version, and I'm like, no, no, this is after. So then I had to explain like the before after. I get. I'm just gonna say, Tommy, like uh, Taylor Swift, if you want to come on a podcast, anytime. We won't ask about your personal life. Nope. Like we just want to know unless what, you want us to what you think about the world. And uh, we had Justin Trudeau on. Yeah, we right? will. So, we'll shit on Scooter yeah. Braun. Oh man, and Scooter Libby. Yeah, yeah. We'll, All the scooters. We'll try to get the BTS people on the scooters. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um. That's all we got for questions. Uh, I am going to be off next week. So you're going to hear from Ben Soul. It's going to be a solo joint. It's going to be fantastic. I got some cool people lined up at this Copenhagen thing. So, uh, like, we'll, we'll I'm excited. Hear, hear some good voices. I'm jealous of you getting to spend some time with these folks that we will name later. Yes. It'll be a great episode. They're good folks. Um, uh, I'm sorry to miss all you people who've been here for some of the Americas, but yeah. Yeah. Well, but thanks everybody for the great questions. Um, thank you again. Jared Kushner for, again, watching a masterclass taught by a fiction writer to help write your memoir. James Patterson. When you know you're just going to hire a ghostwriter, dude. Well, that's the thing. Does anybody think he's actually writing it? You clown. It's kind of like the anecdote that he probably leaked out because he thought it made him look good and it doesn't. I mean, like, yeah, you have three months. I mean, I like how he's pretending he's solving Middle East peace, but it's like, I don't know. You're just pissing away your last days. You could have helped prevent an insurrection. I mean, that sounds better to me on paper than uh, the masterclass. You could have, yeah, there's a lot of things you could have done differently. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. literally anything. Yeah, yeah, just about everything. I guess he lined yeah. up a $2 billion yeah. bribe, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, is it really worth it though? We're all gonna die in the end. Uh, <laughs> like, you know I mean? like, 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 <laughs> we are all gonna die in the end, whether we have $2 billion or not, and, and yeah. I'd like to have not, you know, aligned myself with yeah. Mohammed Salman. Or married into a Trump family, yeah. speaking yeah. of Greek tragedies. A lot tragedies. of different choices, yeah. Just, I guess, just a total full on tragedy. Yeah gross yeah weird edible stuff happening there too anyway that's all we got i'll talk to you in two weeks see ya positive the world is a crooked media production the executive producer is michael martinez our producer is Haley muse it's mixed and edited by andrew chadwick kyle seglin is our sound engineer thanks to saul rubin for production support and to our digital team elijah cone B.B. Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash Crooked Media. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.